and singing this morning. I want to take this opportunity to welcome those of you that are our first-time guests this morning. If this is your first time here at Grace, we especially thank you for being with us today. And we do have a QR code that is printed on a card in front of the, in the pew in front of you. It looks like the one on the screen behind me. And let me invite you to take that card. You can scan it with your smartphone and fill out the information card that it'll take you to. You can tell us a little bit about yourself. And then also, if you have any questions about the ministry here at Grace, we would certainly like to answer those for you as well. And uh, we'd like to just follow up with you and, and again, get to know you just a little bit better. A um, couple of other um, matters that I just wanted to mention very quickly. Um, we also did institute, uh, beginning last week, text to give. And so if you would prefer to give through texting, uh, we now have that available for you. You can see on the screen behind me the number uh, that is there for you if you want to use your, your phone to do that. And we want to also just encourage you to continue uh, to financially support the work of the ministry here at Grace. We do have giving boxes in the back if you are so inclined to give this morning. And you can also uh, continue to give online uh, through our website. And so just some different ways that you're able to help support our work here in the ministry. I also want to re remind the men, I know it was mentioned in the video uh, before the service today, but we will be meeting this afternoon at 5 p.m. We meet in the kids' chapel, and so I invite you to come join, it, join me there. Uh, we are doing now sermon-based discuss discussion groups twice a month for the men and twice a month for the ladies, and so it's the men's turn tonight, and so we will be meeting this evening at 5, and we will be discussing 2 Samuel 6, and so let me invite you to join us this evening. And then, unfortunately, I have to reschedule the uh, prospective members class that was scheduled for uh, next Sunday. Unfortunately, I will not be able to teach that class next week. Uh, but if you are thinking about joining Grace, you have interest in membership, you can use that same QR code to contact us that way. You can also email the church office or you can catch me after the service and we can certainly talk about a time that we can get together. We will be scheduling a different time for the prospective member cl members class, but unfortunately I cannot meet next week. Um, also, I forgot to mention uh, before at prayer time, just be in prayer for many of our kids from the academy. They will be traveling uh, to Greenville, South Carolina this coming week to participate in the National Fine Arts Competition. We have many kids that are traveling um, this coming week for that, and so pray for their safety and just pray that they would also uh, do their best as they use their gifts and abilities to honor the Lord through uh, the Fine Arts Competition this coming week. I would invite you to find 2 Samuel 6. We are continuing on in our study of the life of David. And uh, if you were not here with us the last couple of weeks, uh, David now is king over a combined nation. He has been made king over both the southern kingdom and also the northern kingdom. And we're going to pick up our account in chapter 6 where David, if I could say it this way, he's licking his wounds a little bit. Things have not gone particularly well for David in the opening verses of chapter 6. And so I'm going to begin reading in verse number 11, and I'm going to read a few verses, and then we will take a look at this context and this story. Look at verse 11. Actually, that's back up to verse 9. If you were not here last week, what happens in verses 1 through 8? They are attempting to move the Ark of the Covenant from where it had been. And they are now moving it to Jerusalem, which has now been named David's new capital under the combined nation of Israel, the unified nation of Israel. And in the midst of moving the cart, moving the ark rather, on a cart, which they were not supposed to be doing, uh, the ark moved, Uzzah reaches up and touches it, and he is immediately put to death. And so we are 
in the aftermath of that. Notice verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom of Gittite, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we look into this text this morning that we would be reminded of what it means to to worship, what it means to have a personal relationship with you. And God, I pray that as we look at this account of David's life that we would see as now New Testament believers understanding what we have in Christ, what we have now the opportunity to worship together corporately, and that this would be a reminder to us of the joys of having a personal relationship with you. So bless now this time together around your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've always heard it said this way, that failure is rarely fatal. I always say this, if you're not failing, you're not trying. Well, David is coming off a very significant failure. He has failed in that he put the people under his leadership in a very tenuous situation. God had given them specific instructions on how the Ark of the Covenant was to be built. We looked at that last week. He also was given specific instructions on how the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be moved. David violated those commandments and decided to go against what God had instructed him to do, took matters into his own hands, and decided to move the Ark of the Covenant in a way that, humanly speaking, I guess, made sense. But we are finding David, as I mentioned, kind of licking his wounds a little bit. He has been humbled. He is going through this period of time of a significant failure, even though he has not been king for a very long period of time. And the question is, while David had made a very reckless decision that cost one man his wife, and by the way, David was left ruminating in his anger at God, but as now the dust begins to settle, David is going to show us his response to this failure. What is he going to do? And in the midst of this, as we now see what David, the steps that David takes to now properly move the Ark of the Covenant, we're going to also learn another aspect of, of worship, which we talked about last week. Not only are we commanded to humbly respect God's untouchable holiness, which we studied last week, we also are to use worship as an occasion to joyfully focus on God's undeniable grace and mercy. As Pastor West mentioned in our singing this morning, that as we enter into the Easter time of year, it is very tempting, it's very easy for us, especially if you've been a Christian for a long period of time, to just sort of take this as another ritualistic time of the year. 
And yet in reality, this time of year is a perfect time to remember Christ's sacrifice on the cross of Calvary for our sins. Now, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, you may have been a little uncomfortable with some of the things that we read this morning, sacrificing animals and some of those things. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But let me remind you that as we think about the Bible as a whole, that the Old Testament is really laying the groundwork for when the Messiah would come, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus would be sacrificed on a cross in order to fulfill all of the Old Testament law that we're going to refer to today and some of the imagery from the Old Testament that we're going to talk about this morning, that all of that was fulfilled in Christ. Now, I want you, if you're following in a physical Bible, if you have one there, you can keep your finger in 2 Samuel 6, but I want you to also find with me 1 Chronicles chapter 15, because we're going to look at a parallel passage and try to understand what was it that David is, if you will, learning from his mistake? What is he learning from his failure? In case you're not familiar with First and Second Chronicles, if you read through First and Second Chronicles, you're going to read a lot of the same stories that you find in books like First and Second Samuel. The reason being is these books, First and Second Chronicles, were written at a later period of time to the group of people that was coming back into the land of Israel after the exile that happened under, during the period of time of men like Daniel. While they were out, been cast out of the land, there was a group now coming back to the land, and First and Second Chronicles was written to the returning exiles and giving them a history of the nation of Israel. So I'm going to read a few verses of First and Second, First Chronicles 15 and 16 to give you a little bit more background about what is taking place in Second Samuel 6. Let me begin reading First Chronicles 15 verses 1 through 3. It says, David built houses for himself in the city of David. And he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites might carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Jump down to verse 11. Then David summoned the priests, and I'm not going to read through the names there. You can read through them, verse 12. And he said to them, you are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time. We got it wrong the first time. We tried to put the thing on a cart. It fell over. Uzzah touched it, and he got killed. Let's not make the same mistake twice. And he goes on and he says, because we did not seek him according to the rule. We disregarded what God had said. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with poles as Moses had commanded them. Okay, this time they're going to do it correctly. Verse 16, and David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers who should play. Uh Uh-oh. Wow, does that next word make you nervous? 
loudly. They were to sing and play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals. Now, our youngest son plays drums. It's hard to play a cymbal quietly, okay? To raise sounds. That word means to exalt God, to be set on high of joy. That word there means gladness, pleasure, excitement. I love how the net, if you're not familiar with the net, that is the New English translation of verse 16 of 1 Chronicles 15 says, they were to play various instruments, including stringed instruments and cymbals, and to sing loudly and joyfully. Loudly and joyfully. To lift up their voices in joy. To praise God. Verse 19, the singers... Heman, Asaph, and Ethan were to sound bronze cymbals. Verse 22, the leader of the Levites, Chaniah, the music was to direct the music for he understood it. He was skilled at it. He was gifted at it. He was called to lead them skillfully. Verse Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16. They brought the ark of God, then placed it in the tent that David had pitched for it. Then they offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in God's presence. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Jump down to verse 7. On that day, David decreed for the first time to give thanks, be given to the Lord by Asaph and his relatives. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Proclaim his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell about all of his wonderful works. Honor his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Is this too happy for you? Does this make you a little uncomfortable? Woo, a lot of happiness in these verses. Search the Lord and for his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonderful works he has done, his wonders, his judgments that he has pronounced. And so as we read, through, I won't read any more of those verses, but when we read the parallel account, we get a little bit more background of what David has been experiencing and going through during this three-month interlude as he is now getting ready to, for the second time, bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting is what stimulates this, by the way, is Obed-Edom, he's getting blessed by God. How many times did we read that again and again and again in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel? That Obed-Edom was blessed by God. His household had been blessed. David understood. Again, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't an idol like the pagan nations around them. It wasn't made for that. It wasn't made to be worshipped. But it was this imagery of God's presence among God's people. Remember, he said that he would meet them there. He would come to the mercy seat and he would commune with them and he would be in their presence. So this represented something of significant importance to the people of God. And so now David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and he's going, it says in verse uh, 12 that David brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed Edom to the house of David or to the city of David with rejoicing. There is this sense of excitement, this sense of gladness. Now, I want you to notice, by the way, in verse 5 and also 
occurring once again in verse 21. If you look up at verse uh, 5, it says, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. If you look over at verse 21, we didn't read that far, but verse 21, And David said to Michael, we'll get to her in just a minute, It is before the Lord who has chosen me above your father and above all of his house to appoint me as prince over Israel of the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. Now this word celebrate, which happens twice, combined with this word gladness, shows us that there is this picture of celebration, this picture of making merry. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds of Hebrew for very long, but I do want to draw your attention to something profoundly interesting. In the midst of this time of worship, verse 5, verse 21, we have this translated ESV, the word celebrate. We also have the word gladness. We're going to see the word joy. We're going to see the word dance. But this word celebrate is of particular interest. I'm going to spend a moment on it. It happens again in verse 5 and in verse 21. By the way, in the King James Version, it's translated as played. They played before God. They were having a good time. There was a, it was a sense of, the word has a sense of joking, laughter, to play a sport. And this word is interesting. Sekak is the word. It occurs a cognate of it. It happens in Genesis chapter 17, verse 17, when Abraham says, fell on his face and laughed. And he said to himself, shall I, a child, be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? At that age, I don't know if you laugh or cry at that point, right? And his wife Sarah, in chapter 18, Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Same word. Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Later it says, as they laughed. In Genesis 21, verses 5 through 7, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac, it's the same word with a letter in front of it. Isaac means laughter. It's the same word. That we, it's a cognate of the word that we find in 2 Samuel 6 of this idea of excitement, laughter, joy. We find the same word in Proverbs 31, verse 25. Strength and dignity are her, are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Now, not to belabor that, but there, the point is this. There was an outward expression of celebration. There was an outward expression of joy. There was an outward demonstration of their love, of their appreciation, of their excitement for what God was doing in their midst. Now, in verse 13, we notice, back in 2 Samuel 6, we notice now that those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, and he sacrificed an ox and fatted calf. In other words, they take a few steps, they understand the magnitude of what is taking place, And now they take this period of time to offer a sacrifice to God. Do you get a sense that this is a very different occasion than the first time? Verse 14, David now, God's anointed one, dances before the Lord. By the way, Pastor West preached a message on this very same text not long ago, and I won't go into all the weeds of it that that he handled very, very well. But I want to mention, just to remind you, this word uh, karar means to whirl or to rotate or to skip or to dance with joy. 
This is not a picture of nightclub dancing or something like that. But this is a picture of excitement. It is a picture of joy. My wife and I and my family, we went to see um, a hockey game the other night. We went up to watch the Hurricanes play. And hockey fans are unique individuals. I like hockey. I enjoy hockey. But hockey fans are very unique. We were right, we were, I think, what, three or four rows back from the glass. And not that it's about this, but I do want to just point out, the only fight of the game happened right in front of us. It was great. It was fantastic. And you walk into a sporting match, and I'm not arguing a worship service should be like a hockey game. I've seen church services come close (laughs) to hockey games. (laughs) However, there is a palpable sense of excitement. There's a palpable sense of joy. I wonder when people come into our worship service, does it feel like a funeral or a celebration? Are we here to mourn a dead Savior or to celebrate a risen one? Because joy, my friend is something that you see throughout the Old Testament, especially in texts like this, where there was joy and happiness and excitement and exuberance. It wasn't just something to do because you had to. It was something that was a privilege to come and to worship before their creator. And yet sometimes in our conservatism, it feels much more like we are coming to a dirge. And yet, when David is dancing before the Lord, we see that he had prepared a place for the Ark of the Covenant. This tent, this special place that was going to house this Ark of the Covenant. Now notice what happens in verse 16. As the Ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him. She hated him. Notice, by the way, it's curious that the writer here describes her as the daughter of Saul, not as the wife of David. He goes on, and they brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and set it in its place. Inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and David offered more burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each one to his house. I wonder what that looked like. Like in your sanctified imagination, what was that like? You have just seen the Ark of the Covenant be brought to Jerusalem. You've had this time of worship. You have sacrificed unto God. David has blessed you, and you have had this great time of worship. I wonder how they went home that day. Discouraged, downcast, depressed. I would suggest they went home with joy. They went home understanding God's magnificence. They went home understanding God's holiness. 
They went home understanding God's deliverance and God's provisions. And they would understand how great their God was. And there would have been this sense of excitement and how great is our God. But in David's own household, verse 20, And David returned to bless now his household. And who meets him? His wife. Hope this doesn't sound like your home, by the way. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, there it is again, came out to meet David and she said, notice her words, by the way, third person, sarcasm, resentment, bitterness. But Michael met David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. By the way, I won't get into the weeds of this. Chronicles demonstrates us he was not naked. In fact, in the text I read, he had an ephod on, which was part of what the priest would wear. He had taken his outer garment off. He wasn't he wasn't running around without any clothes on, but he had taken off, if you will, his royal regalia. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father. Oh, David, 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 buddy. And above all of his household to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But the female servants of whom you have spoken of, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of his death. Now we'll talk, for the men, we'll talk more about the relationship with Michael and David tonight. But notice Michael's accusations. He had dishonored himself. He had removed his outer garment. Again, 1 Chronicles 15, 27 makes it clear he was not completely unclothed. There is no internal evidence in this text that Michael's accusations are accurate. None. Michael's rejection of David is actually symptomatic of an underlying problem in her own personal relationship with God. David is never judged by God for his dancing, his joy, his celebration. Not one time. And yet, as we work through this account for the entire chapter, we have two people who have been held accountable by God. One, Uzzah, for violating the untouchable holiness of God. When he touched the Ark of the Covenant, he drops dead. And the writer here goes out of his way to tell us that because of Michael's resentment and hatred and bitterness, she does not have children for the rest of her life. Now, please don't run out of here and say every time a woman can't bear a child, she's under God's judgment. Please don't say that. You don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true. I'm saying that of Michael because that's what's here. That because of her reaction to David, God does not allow her to have children. Now, that also, by the way, marks a very clear end to the line of Saul. 
He's done. His kingship is now over. You know, as we think through this text, and we'll apply it in just a moment to us. When we think through this text, so much of our worship, whenever we say worship, there is this synonymous insertion of the word music. And no doubt music is certainly a a part of worship. It was here. They used a variety of, of instrumentation. They used people that were skilled in the ability to play and to sing. In the Psalms, it talks about playing skillfully. My violin teacher back in the day would quote that verse to me all the time, although when it came to violin, I couldn't quite get the skillful part. It's a very difficult instrument. But to play skillfully, but you see the inclusion of instrumentation in worship. You know, I was years ago now, a long time ago, before I came here to Grace, I was contacted by a ministry in a different state, and, and I went to meet with them, their, their pulpit committee and their deacons. It was a huge group of people. And we were sitting around this large table, Michelle was beside me, and they're asking me all these questions. And they, first of all, they kept asking me about sermon prep. They're like, how do you prepare your sermons? So I'd answer the question. A couple minutes later, well, how do you prepare your sermons? I'd answer the question. Then they would say, would well, you work in Greek and Hebrew? I'd answer the question. What's the source? You get the picture. On and on and on. Finally, one of them says, can I tell you why we're asking all these questions about sermon preparation? Why? They said, because our previous pastor was plagiarizing them and stealing them from the internet and preaching them as if he was, if they were his own. It's like, well, I've never done that. I'm sure I did a really horrible job at that, my first couple of sermons, but I've never done that. So we worked through that. Then they turned to the discussion that everybody's going to, it's going to come to every time you're talking to a church, what's your position on music? And so we started talking about what I've been saying for here and forever is that balanced worship is reverential, all of God's holiness violated by Uzzah, combined with a celebratory aspect of worship that is rejoicing in all that God has done, violated in this text by Michael. Well, but what does music sound like? So I told them, I said, here's what I want you to do. I said, pick up your Bibles, and they did. I said, flip to the back cover, and they did. And I said, I want you to pull out the inspired CD that God included in the back of your Bible and take it out, take it home, and let's play it and see exactly what music is supposed to sound like. And the room went bizarrely quiet. I thought of that off the top of my head, by the way. I thought I was pretty impressed with myself. And they finally sat there and somebody said, God didn't tell us what it sounds like. Exactly. Exactly. So, friend, be very careful that when you're standing at your window like Michael, saying, you know, that person's just a little too happy. People shouldn't raise their hand when they're praising God. They should sit stoically. That's hard to defend. And so when we think about worship, We think about all that God has done for us. What does this text have to do with you and me? Well, let me give you two applications. One, we are commanded to rejoice in the Lord. That is found in both testaments of Scripture. 
It is found repeatedly in the Psalms. It is found repeatedly in the New Testament that we are commanded to rejoice in the Lord. By the way, the sovereign majesty of the Lord is incomparable and worthy of reverent, celebratory, joyful, and jubilant worship. Now, I admit, it's very difficult for me to say, you will rejoice and you will have joy. Uh, Good luck with that. It's like saying to your kids, you will be content. You will, I can't make you be joyful. And then also admittedly, I'd have to admit that everyone expresses joy differently. Some people wear joy on their face and you can see it. Others, if their mouth goes from straight to a little crooked, that's joy for them. I get that. It does look different. But there should be an expression of joy. Came across an interesting article. As best I can tell, this was not written by a believer. The man by the name of Jordan Gray describes himself as a relationship coach. His article was entitled, The Reason You're So Miserable with Life. That's what caught my attention. That's a cool title. I stink at titles, by the way. The reason you're so miserable with life. The very first sentence. Actually, the second sentence. He started with that question. Here's the next sentence. He said, and I'm quoting, You are unhappy because you have a long-term romance with your misery. And you've had it for as long as you can remember. I put the article down. I was on my computer and I just sat there for a minute. I thought about that. The long romance with misery. You know anybody like that? I do. Do you know any Christians like that? I do. Rejoice in the Lord always. Gray offers, by the way, two reasons that we stay in this love affair with misery. It's curious. He said, and I'm quoting him, he said, you've learned repeatedly through the course of your lifetime that you get more attention when you're struggling. I wrote in parentheses there, misery loves company and the attention that it receives. Jordan said, secondly, he said, it allows you to avoid taking responsibility for your life. Unbeliever saying this. Do you have a love affair with your misery? As a blood-bought sinner, don't you believe that the redemption that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient enough for you to have joy? I mean, may it never be. We all understand. We're going to talk about this in Connect Group this morning. That when Paul was saying, I have learned therewith to be content, and he's talking about rejoicing in the Lord, he is sitting in a prison cell. And yet, he could find joy in the Lord because he understood the price that Jesus Christ paid for him on the cross of Calvary. you're here this morning and you're without Christ, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never experienced salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, to be blunt, I can understand misery. Because without Christ, we are without hope. But for you who do know Christ, you have hope of all of eternity to spend with your Creator. Isn't that a reason to be joyful? Regardless of your circumstances, 
I mean, be honest with yourself. Who are you more like in this text? Are you more like David, dancing before the Lord, celebrating what God was doing? Or are you more like Michael, bitter, resentful? How great a job the king did today. You humiliated yourself. David said, I'd do it again. I'll do even more if I have to. Because I will worship my Lord. Second, I want us to see as application to us today is we all lean toward worship that suits our personality. And we often demand preferences be met according to as I want it. Exactly how I want it to sound. Exactly how I want it to look. Exactly how I believe worship ought to be done. Not to be redundant, but I want to remind you that Uzzah was held accountable for violating God's holiness and commandments and touching the Ark of the Covenant. I wrote this in comment to that. This was in our vernacular, in our current day. You could say it this way. This is the unrestrained contemporary worshiper in this chapter. He got carried away. Worship should never become a circus. Worship should never become entertainment-driven. I agree. But Uzzah here violates God's holiness. He got carried away. He violated a clear commandment given by Scripture, and God held him accountable for it. But God also held Michael accountable for her reaction to the joyful, celebratory worship before the Lord. I I wrote this. this. She's the fundamentalist in the chapter. See, when the church becomes an indoor circus, God's not pleased with that. But when the church becomes a graveyard for the living, God's not pleased with that either. Corinth would probably represent to us unrestrained worship in violation of God's holiness. I would submit to you that Ephesus in the book of Revelation represents to us a church that was doctrinally sound, but they loved doctrine more than they loved Jesus. And God said, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. And so we must never be a graveyard for the living. We must never be a circus. One man got careless in his worship and God took his life. One woman turned her nose up at a joyful celebratory expression of worship and God made her barren. You see, it disgraces God, I believe, when we make worship into a show, when we make it into a circus, when we make it into entertainment that lacks reverence for God's holiness. I would equally suggest to you that it disgraces God when we talk about His greatness and we talk about sound doctrine, but there's no joy. There's no celebratory response to what God has done in your heart, and in your life. Some of us in this room need to grow in your reverence for the Lord. You need to grow in your understanding of God's holiness. Maybe some of you have become frivolous and not taking God's commandments seriously. I know you, most of you, and I would say that's not where most of us need to grow. 
Most of us need to grow in our joyful and celebratory expression of worship. We come each Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, not to mourn his death. I know it makes people uncomfortable whenever we talk about worship. What's coming next? What's going to happen? Hopefully, prayerfully, Wes and I, as we work through some of these texts, we've made it clear we're not interested in worship that is emotion-driven, entertainment-driven, not interested in creating an atmosphere of a circus. By the way, when David was dancing and rejoicing, there was no cheerleader up front. This was spontaneous worship. But nor are we interested in a cold, formalistic mode of worship that lacks joy and celebration. I'm convinced that we are to strive for a balanced worship, reverentially honors God's holiness while celebrating the love and the majesty of our almighty God. So may we be a church that reverently worships God while also celebrating his greatness. We as Christians, may I remind you that we have eternal hope, that we possess hope of an eternity with our creator, not because we're better than anybody else, not because we're Baptists, not because you're whatever title you want. The only reason we have eternal hope is because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the minute we forget that, the minute we forget that, we are prone to misery. And as Christians, as, child, as a child of God, your Heavenly Father is something far greater for you than a life of misery. A life of hope, a life of joy, a life of celebrating His holiness, His love, and His mercy. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this text this morning. We pray that we would lay to heart the lessons that are, that are found for us in this text. I understand it's an Old Testament text. And yet there's much that we as the New Testament body of Christ can, can learn from and apply to our own worship. And so, Lord, I pray that as we think through David's example of celebrating who you are, not celebrating in a way to draw attention to himself, but rather to draw attention to what you had accomplished in their midst. And so, God, I pray that as we think through our own practice of worship, that we would, we would understand that we don't ever in our lives want to violate your holiness. We don't ever want to violate